Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a neurosurgeon explains how a postage stamp sized gamma tile is being used to treat brain tumors. We place the radiation sources inside the brain at the site of surgery. So uh, the radiation happens right the moment after surgery. And a genetic counselor discusses how cancer risk is assessed and the genetic concerns with breast, ovarian, prostate, and pancreatic cancers. You can inherit different genes and risks from both your mom and your dad's side. So knowing the cancer history on both sides is equally as important. All that and a visit from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a genetic counselor talks about his role in assessing cancer risk and what you need to know about commercial DNA testing services. But first, a neurosurgeon tells of the new way some brain tumors are treated with a device the size of a postage stamp. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Neurosurgeons have a new way to target radiation therapy in patients with brain tumors. And here to talk about this new tool is Dr. Harish Babu. He's co-director of the Brain Tumor Program at Upstate and director of Minimally Invasive Neurosurgery. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Babu. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on HealthLink. So tell us about this new tool called GammaTile. So GammaTile is a, a sort of a surgically targeted radiation therapy technology uh, that, is, that has been recently approved by the FDA to be used uh, for brain tumor patients. Um, usually brain tumors are treated with a combination of surgery and radiation. And, uh, this, uh, you, and usually the radiation uh, is an external being you sit in, in a radiation machine and the, and the radiation comes from the outside. Uh, this is the other way around. Here, we place the radiation sources inside the brain at the site of surgery. So uh, the radiation happens right the moment after surgery. Now, these are stamp-sized bioabsorbable collagen tiles that are embedded with small radiation sources, which uh, and they are designed to be implanted by a neurosurgeon at the end of a tumor resection. Now, these uh, stamp-sized radiation sources are placed at the edge of the resection area where the need for the radiation is the most because we think that's where most of the, uh, the, the cancer cells are and where the boundary between the cancer and the normal brain is. Now, as soon as so it goes into the, let me just interrupt you. So it goes into the space that's left after you take the tumor Correct. out. Correct. And you said it's a stamp size tiled. Does one tile, is that all that you need? The number of tiles that we need may differ depending upon each patient's uh, tumor, the surgery, and the resection cavity or the resection bed that is left after removal of the tumor. So this is a d decided on an individual basis uh, for an individual patient. There is no standard number here. You described it as a bioresorbable collagen tile. Does that mean it dissolves into the tissue or what happens to the, it once you leave it there? The, the collagen uh, structure uh, which holds these uh, radiation sources uh, are implanted, but eventually these collagen sources are absorbed by the brain tissue, usually within uh, three, four months after implant. Now, the tiles hold their shape and, and the position while the brain, uh, within the brain, while the radiation is being delivered. Um, but after about three, four months, these, uh, these collagen tiles are dissolved and, and only this loose sort of small uh, seeds of this radiation are left. And, and the radiation has also decreased. And, and that is, you know, it, it, those radiation seeds stay there, but the larger tile just dissolves. 
When I looked uh, for some pictures online, it, these little tiles had uh, sort of bumps on one side of them, like a almost like a Lego tile. Um, wh why are they designed with with bumps on one side? Well, it is uh, to some extent it is to let the surgeons know uh, which side to place uh, should go to the brain side and which side should be to the to to the sort of the cavity side. Uh, the bumpy side of the tile is where, which goes towards the brain side, um, and it is it is designed in such a way that the bumpy side would give the correct dose of radiation, the amount of radiation. Uh, so that that helps us uh, sort of uh, place those tiles in the during surgery appropriately. I've heard of brachytherapy, where radiation sources are placed in the tumor resection cavity during surgery. How is this different? It, uh, brachytherapies uh, for have been tried for for a long time. In fact, I think the first ones were tried back in 1930s or 1940s. Um, and several different sources of radiation have you know have evolved over a period of time. Um, and uh, about 20 years ago, 30 years ago, what the what was being tried was iodine 125. Now. Now, in the past 20 years or so, uh, you know, radiation scientists, uh, physicists have, have seen that cesium-131 is, is a much better source uh, for radiation. It gives about the same radiation. It is effective, but it has an, one advantage uh, that is it is a shorter half-life. Uh, you get the same amount of radiation in a shorter time period and in a shorter distance. From a medicine point of view, that translates to uh, you 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 get treated for a shorter period of time. That is improved ease of use. You know it increases efficacy, and as well as has a superior safety profile. So in some sense, this is similar to the brachytherapy, but a, a lot more evolved and and technologically better. How does treatment using gamma tile compare with standard radiation treatment? So. Uh, these uh, these gamma tiles, uh, these radiation sources, you know, spit out radiation, and and that which and that affects the the cancer cells. Now, when you place these gamma tiles, uh, about uh, you know fifty percent uh, of the therapeutic doses uh, are delivered within the first ten days after surgery. Now, in in a normal that in a normal what we call as an external beam radiation, you every day you would have to go to the you know the physician's office, uh, you know get the radiation, and that happens over a period of day days and weeks. Here, fifty percent of the dose is uh, is delivered within the first ten days, and in fact, about ninety five percent of the dose is delivered within the six weeks. And you don't have to go to any physician's office; you're just up and about doing daily things. It, the radiation is happening, uh, you know, inside your brain. And you're not going to any physician's office. What are the uh, side effects like compared gamma tile with the external beam radiation? So if I, if we start off with the external beam radiation, uh, the the side effects are headaches. Uh, you have hair loss, you know, nausea, vomiting, uh, tiredness, and and the most and you also notice uh, skin and scalp discoloration, uh, and also you know th there is also uh, memory and cognitive problems. Now, th that doesn't mean that everybody gets this. Uh, some, you know, it's a combination of things that people get during external beam radiation. Now, while in gamma tile, uh, you know, there is very little side effect. Uh, one side, of, they, not much side effect you get. And sometimes the side effects are related to the radiation necrosis that happens very rarely, but generally it is much well tolerated than the, the conventional external beam radiation uh, that is designed for classical uh, brain brain tumors. Do we know yet whether gamma tile will be more effective at preventing a tumor from growing back than traditional radiation? We we do not know that yet. We we don't have enough studies uh, to suggest uh, whether uh, gamma tile is better than the standard radiation therapy. Uh, studies are ongoing. Uh, we don't have enough numbers to state that yet. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with neurosurgeon Dr. Harish Babu about a new tool for brain tumors called Gamma Tile. 
So I want to ask you about what patients may be candidates for the gamma tile. Is this adults, children? Currently, it is FDA approved for adults uh, for recurrent um, brain tumors, such as glioblastomas, uh, metastatic disease, and meningiomas. And it is also, uh, since uh, the beginning of 2020, also been approved for for a primary brain tumors, that is, uh, you know, uh, first time diagnosed uh, brain tumors as well, but only for adults. Does it matter the size of the tumor or where it's located in the brain as to whether they would be a good candidate for this? Um, so as far as a size or the location, it is not a concern. Uh, any location or any size uh, patients or tumors uh, can can get gamma tiles. Um, the only the only thing is that they they should be ready for surgery. Gamma tiles are placed after surgery, so you need to uh, you know be a surgical candidate for those tumors. And once at the end of surgery is when we place these gamma tiles. But to answer your question, size and uh, and and location of the tumor are not a concern. Is there anything that would disqualify a person from having gamma tile? I saw something about um, hypersensitivity to bovine-derived materials. Yeah, um, because these collagen fibers are derived derived from bovine material, uh, anybody who has previously had uh, sensitivity or hypersensitivity to bovine-derived material, they would be they would not be candidates for uh, for gamma tile. And also, if there are there if there are any patients who have rarely shown uh, to have increased uh, necrosis from radiation, uh, they may also, you know, we may also need to counsel them appropriately. Uh, they may be sensitive to radiation as well. Now, if someone is going to need to have chemotherapy after the, you know, surgery and the gamma tile, can they do that with the gamma tiles in place? Certainly, they can. Um, um, gamma tile does not uh, uh, exclude them. Uh, exclude any patients from getting chemotherapy. Uh, their chemotherapy can continue um, just about the same way as they would be conventionally. Now, will someone who has gamma tile, are they going to be radioactive for a period of time? And can they be around their loved ones in the days after this? So get, um, once we place the gamma tiles, uh, as, as I just alluded earlier, uh, you know, about 50% of the radiation um, does happen. Uh, it happens in the first 10 days, and about 95% of the radiation is in the first six weeks. So during this this time, theoretically, uh, there is radioactivity. Uh, but we know that the cesium source, uh, the drop-off of the radiation is very quick, which means the the distance uh, where you feel the radiation is, is very short, within millimeters. So theoretically, yes, uh, one, sh one should be aware of this, and their loved ones should be uh, should be counseled uh, that there is radiation, uh, you know, uh, within the within the brain of the patient. Um, but after about six weeks, uh, as we said, about ninety five percent of the radiation is gone. So, uh, so the first six weeks, one should be uh, aware of this and be careful. Well, I'd like to have you walk us through what a patient who's going to have this procedure can expect. So how do you tell someone to prepare in the days ahead of surgery? What do they need to do to get ready? So um, placing a gamma tile or the gamma tile procedure per se uh, adds about two or three minutes uh, in addition to the routine surgery they might otherwise be uh, signing up for. Um, and for any neurosurgical procedure, you know, we, we, we sit down with the patient, we talk to them, we counsel them. Um, what what are the goals of the surgery? What are we what are we trying here? Uh, is tumor resection and and what are the risks for surgery? And and there are the, the risks for surgeries are long, but but effective. You know, most importantly, uh, sort of having stroke or coma or serious uh, you know neurological deficit. Uh, we talk to them depending upon the location and 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 the size of the tumor. And and once we have had a discussion, uh, the patient can choose to. Go with surgery, or go, you know, or decide against surgery. And at that time, we, you know, we would, we would again uh, sort of discuss what exactly the surgery uh, looks like. You know, where the incision would be, uh, what times, and how how long will they be in the in the hospital? Typically, after a procedure like this, they would be a night or two nights in the hospital. And and we would say that about in the first five to six weeks, uh, they would, you know. 
there would be little, they would not have the normal activity. They, uh, because just because they would be lethargic, they would be a little weak just from getting the surgery. After that, they can go about doing their normal day-to-day -day activities. So it sounds like inserting the gamma tile only adds, you said two or three minutes at the end of the procedure and having these installed doesn't seem like it changes the course of recovery for most people. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. From a, from a surgeon standpoint, it's about two to three minutes extra for the surgery. Um, and, and from a patient's perspective, it shouldn't change um, anything more than the normal surgery as well. But obviously, this sometimes may depend upon patient to patient, but most patients have done very well uh, with, with gamma tile placement. Will the remnants of the gamma tile show up on brain scans in, in the future that they have? Yeah. So, the, so as we said, the, the bioabsorbable collagen tiles are absorbed in, in you know, three to four months, so they don't show up. But the seeds, uh, these are sort of two to three millimeter size uh, titanium beads. Uh, they will show up on the scan um, even after the radiation sources have depleted and even after the uh, collagen has been absorbed. But so, yes, those radiation seeds uh, will show up on the MRI. Now, for listeners who want to learn more about gamma tile, um, how can they find out or get connected with you if this is something that interests them? So the patients or, or referring physicians uh, who may be interested in, in, in gamma tile, they certainly can, can you know, uh, sort of seek a referral at the Department of Neurosurgery. Uh, they can either um, you know, send us a referral. Our office would be happy to contact them and, and do the needful and, and channel them uh, to the appropriate, you know, sort of surgical field. I'll let listeners know that phone number for the neurosurgery department, 315-464-4470. Thank you to Dr. Harish Babu. He's co-director of the Brain Tumor Program at Upstate and director of Minimally Invasive Neurosurgery. And we've been talking about the new gamma tile. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. When might someone with cancer benefit from seeing a genetic counselor? Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Most cancers are not hereditary, but in cases where a patient or their doctor believes they may be at risk for a cancer that is inherited from family members, genetic counseling may be of use. Today, I'm speaking with Jason Chandler. He's a genetic counselor at the Upstate Cancer Center. Welcome to HealthLink on Air. Thank you for having me, Amber. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'd like to start by asking you to explain how you go about helping someone understand their cancer risk. What's involved? Yeah, so when we meet with patients, one of the most important things that we go over is both personal and family history. So of course it's important to know what type of cancer that person might be dealing with, what the pathology might be, when they were diagnosed, how old they were, what type of treatment they've had or are planned to receive, and making sure we get notes from those doctors, whether they be at Upstate or elsewhere. But it's also important to make sure we understand the family history as well. It's just as critical as the personal history because you can inherit different genes and risks from both your mom and your dad's side. So knowing the cancer history on both sides is equally as important. So do you need the patient to bring in like a family tree? Right. So one of the things that we do is actually draw a pedigree or a family tree. And we send out questionnaires to our patients before they meet with us so that they can fill out their family history and kind of label who's who in the family, whether they've had any health issues and what types of cancers they've had. It also gives them a chance to go home and research and ask their family members what's been going on in the family because that's a lot of questions to have to answer on the fly if you don't know that you're going to be asked all of that. So it's good to give them a little warning of what's coming. And they need from both their mother's side and their father's side, right? Are they equally important? They are both equally important. You can just as well inherit any type of risk from both mom and dad. They might express themselves differently if they're coming from your mom or your dad, given that there are different risks in men and women, but you can still inherit a breast cancer risk from your father. It might just not have presented in him. 
So it seems like there's a lot of preparation before they even come to meet with you that uh, some research and it might be sort of time consuming really to put together. It is definitely time consuming. And that's one of the biggest benefits of having a questionnaire like that go out is that we can see what types of cancers are running in the family. And it gives us a chance to do some updated research if we need to look into what are the newest treatments for those types of cancers or maybe cancers that we didn't realize were linked might actually be and check what new genes have come out in the past couple of years. Uh, genetic testing has changed dramatically uh, in the past 10 to 15 years. We used to only be able to test for a few genes, and now we're testing for upwards of 80. Wow. Well, can you explain the difference between germline mutations and somatic mutations? Certainly. That is definitely a point of confusion for a lot of patients who receive genetic testing uh, in both forms. So somatic testing is typically testing that is done just on the tumor that you have itself. So maybe testing a piece of the breast cancer uh, that was found. And that is going to be testing an acquired mutation. So a change that was found only in that breast cell. Now, that often is done to guide treatment options. Maybe there's a specific treatment or drug that is out there that can be targeted to that mutation specifically kind of getting at that personalized medicine aspect that is becoming quite a hot topic. Now, this is something that would have arose because of maybe an exposure or a mistake during replication of the genetic information, but is unlikely to be present in other tissues, such as egg or sperm, which is what we consider germline, something that can be passed on to the next generation. So it's often used for treatment mostly, but it can provide uh, a clue as to whether this might be germline or we have to see with further testing, is this mutation present in all of your cells or just in that tumor? And that's why often people get somatic testing of the tumor, and then they come to see us for germline testing. So having it in a tumor doesn't necessarily mean that this is something you were born with or that is in your family. Exactly. All cancer is genetic in the sense that it is due to mutations in the genes that cause the cells to go haywire and grow out of control. But those mutations in your genes can either be acquired during your lifetime, or you could have been born with them from your mom or your dad. And in that case, you would also be at risk to pass them on to your future children. So it's important to make the distinction whether something was acquired or inherited. So germline mutations, do, do all mutations that a person is born with have some sort of cancer developing ability? Most of them do, and it just depends on what that overall risk is. Some of them are quite low risk, and we're learning a lot more about those as we do more research. The ones that are easy to identify are ones that we found, things like the BRCA1 and 2 genes, which I know we'll get more into. Those genes are much more well-established, and those risks are very well-defined, but it also doesn't guarantee that you'll develop a cancer either. It's never 100% risk. We always talk about kind of like a sliding scale of risk, and Everyone starts with some type of risk, and we're moving that up or down depending on your genetics. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with genetic counselor Jason Chandler from the Upstate Cancer Center. Can genetic counseling help people who are adopted and do not know their family history? Yes, and it's often a surprise that a lot of adopted patients don't even realize. We follow quite strictly the National uh, Cancer Network guidelines for genetic testing, the NCCN. And one of their qualifications is actually being adopted, because if you don't know anything about your family history, we don't want to hold that against you. There could be something that we just aren't privy to that information, and it's important to check. So how do you work with a person who comes to you and doesn't have the, the pedigree or the family tree? Um, where do you start with determining whether the somatic mutation is actually a germline or not? Now, and it's really hard to determine whether it could be or not. That's often why they automatically qualify for testing because it's, it's really a guesswork until we do because there's no family history to go on to gauge whether we think this is. If they have a very large family with a lot of women who've never had breast cancer, it's probably unlikely to be germline. But if they either have all men relatives who don't have any cancer or are adopted where we don't have any history, we really don't know until we check. So it's really important for those patients to get that type of genetic testing just so that they're aware. Are there other sorts of answers a person may be able to get from genetic testing besides whether there's a germline? Yeah, so it can allow us to uh, tweak someone's cancer screening, right? So if we know that someone is, comes back positive, uh, 
one, it provides an answer as to why this happened, which can be very satisfying for patients. Sometimes patients are almost glad that they have a change because it explains why this has happened. It gives them an understanding and it doesn't feel random. Uh, it can guide treatment options, as I mentioned before, or screening for other organs. So you might have come to us for breast cancer, but if we find that you have an increased risk for colon cancer or uh, pancreatic cancer, we can make sure that we're doing that type of screening as well. Uh, of course, focusing on treating you for your breast cancer, but once you've recovered from that, making sure we're still being aware of risk for other organs. Now, would the results of genetic testing for an individual apply to their biological children as well as themselves? Absolutely. So once somebody in the family has been found to carry a genetic mutation, all of their first degree relatives qualify for genetic testing. So siblings and children and parents as well all have a 50% risk to carry that change. Once somebody has been tested and if they are negative, they and their future children do not have that risk to carry that gene. Essentially, once you've been found to have only the correct copies, you can only pass on correct copies. Is there an age cutoff? If a, if a person discovers something, um, can their children be tested or do they have to become adults first? Often we wait until they become adults, somewhere in the 18 to 21 range, once they're able to make decisions. And is this something that they want to know? Uh, not everybody wants to know if they have this type of cancer risks or what they want to do about it. So having the children grow up and have the opportunity to make those decisions for themselves. Autonomy is, of course, utmost uh, importance for us here in cancer. Um, sometimes there can be cancer genes that cause childhood cancers. And if that is the case, we would want to make sure that the children get screened at the appropriate time to make sure they start screening as children. But often these genes are considered adult onset and in the rare case do have childhood onset conditions that we will test for. Is the testing done, is it a blood test or saliva or how, do, how is it actually done? Yeah, one of the most common questions I get. Often it's blood tests when we're in the clinic physically. Uh, we do have the option to do saliva testing as well, which has been uh, a very good alternative for us during the pandemic without having to have people come in for blood samples to the hospital. We can just send a kit to them in the mail. It comes in a little tube. They spit in the tube a couple milliliters and it gets sent back to the Jack testing company and we get results in three to four weeks. So it's a pretty quick, harmless procedure. Well, let me ask you, because there's some commercial DNA testing services like 23andMe and, and there's others, um, do those work for people? Would they be able to provide the information someone needs? To a degree. The way I always try to explain it is that the information you can get from a company like 23andMe related to cancer risk is that it's accurate, but not comprehensive. So it's quite limited in its scope. They're currently only approved by the FDA to test for the three most common mutations in the BRCA1 and 2 genes. And to kind of illustrate how important or the lack of coverage that they have there is that if you think of a gene as a sentence, right? Any sentence, any letter in that sentence can be changed. The spelling could be altered at any point. Now, if I only check the three most common spelling mistakes in a sentence, I might miss a lot of the other spots in the sentence where you can have a spelling mistake. So that's the big difference between something that's commercial, like 23andMe, it's checking for the most common, versus a clinical test. When you come to us, we do full sequencing or checking of every single letter of the gene to make sure that we're not missing any of the spots. So yes, the testing that they do on those three locations is good and it's not likely to change, but you could be missing a lot of other locations that would not be caught unless you did clinical testing. So it can be reassuring to patients and families to find out that they're negative on a 23andMe test, but we would want to go the extra mile beyond that just to make sure that we're not missing something else. Do, do you sometimes get patients who have done 23andMe and they're confused or they um, got results that shocked them and they you know, need help um, figuring out what to do with the information? Yeah, because genetic testing has become so mainstream recently, a lot of patients are very familiar with 23andMe. They're familiar with the saliva samples, or maybe they've done Ancestry.com and they've gotten Ancestry information and they ask, is it like this? And I say, the process is very similar, but we're going to be focusing on cancer genetics rather than Ancestry or other conditions that you might find on 23andMe. Uh, you know, there's a lot of really cool, interesting things on there, but they might not be related to your health. Um, so we do, it helps me provide uh, a groundwork for them. They're familiar with the process to start with, and it gives me something to build off of. 
When um, a genetic counselor is involved, if forgetting about any of the commercial services, but if someone is is uh, their doctor has advised them to come to someone like yourself, a genetic counselor, when um, that's going to happen, does the counseling happen before the test or after the test or both? Because you did mention something before about whether a person wants to know. So how do you help that person? And at, at what stage in the process do you help them decide that? We certainly do both pre-test and post-test counseling. Pre-test counseling is typically the longer portion. It's often up to an hour. Uh, it gives me a chance to really meet with the patients, get to know them very well, what their intentions are. What are they hoping to glean from this information? Is it for treatment purposes? Is it mostly doing it for their kids or their grandkids is often a big motivating factor. So figuring out what drives my patients to get genetic testing or what are their hesitations can help me address why we want to get this testing and how it's going to help them specifically and personally. Uh, what is the benefit to them directly and allow me to all up to um, tweak my counseling to make sure that I'm addressing what they're concerned about um, and make sure that they're comfortable with the genetic testing. And if they aren't ready at this point, we can always revisit in the future. Unless somebody is actively trying to make a treatment decision, such as a surgical decision or chemotherapy change, Often we don't have to do testing right then and there. If somebody's coming to me for a family history of breast cancer, saying in their 30, they've got some time to think about this conversation. Do I want to go home and talk it over with my husband or talk to my mom first and see if she wants to get testing? There's often time for us to kind of assess who's the best person and whether you're comfortable with getting this information because finding that you carry a genetic change can really change your life. So it's important to consider all of the aspects before making a decision. Is it, do you ever have patients that stay with you and come for multiple appointments? If they do get a life-changing diagnosis from a genetic result, um, I'm thinking it might not be resolved with one visit. No, we never get just a single snapshot for somebody. We always follow them consistently. If somebody has been found to have a positive mutation, we're going to initiate the process of referrals to all the specialists that they need to see based on the guidelines. And we want to follow with them every three months to six months to make sure that, you know, those referrals have been placed. What have they said? What has been found? Um, have other family members come in for testing that we can help with? And over time, we do space that out to a year or two years as they get comfortable and get in a routine of their screening with their specialists. But we certainly want to keep up with them. Guidelines can also change. Recommendations change as we learn more and new evidence comes out. So a gene that was initially not recommended for prostate screening, say, might end up being so in five years, even though it was first a breast cancer gene. So making sure we follow with people as recommendations and guidelines change is essential to their care. Upstate's Health Link on Air will be back with more from genetic counselor Jason Chandler after this short break. to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Jason Chandler, a genetic counselor at the Upstate Cancer Center. Since the majority of cancers are not hereditary, which cancer patients are the ones who could benefit from genetic counseling or testing? When we think about red flags for genetic testing, the most important ones that come up are often age. So the young age of onset, breast cancer under the age of 45 or colon cancer under the age of 50, are often the biggest red flags that bring someone in for genetic counseling or because of a family member with that type of history. We can also see multiple cancers in one person. Maybe there's some underlying reason why they developed cancer in multiple places rather than something, as we mentioned, acquired in one cell. Maybe there was something present in all of your cells that led to these multiple cancers. Sometimes multiple cancers over multiple generations. So we see cancer in a grandparent and then in their parents' generation and now into your generation or potentially preventing that. Um, so if we have three or more family members on one side of the family with a breast cancer or a related cancer like ovarian cancer, that can qualify somebody for genetic testing because clearly there's something predisposing that family beyond the random chance that we typically think of. Do health insurers typically pay for genetic testing? That is always a tricky question, and insurance is a very 
fluid situation as they learn and try to keep up with the current technology and the current recommendations. Sometimes insurance lags a couple of years behind, um, but we do see them starting to catch up with genetics. Um, ideally, more genetic counselors might start to work with insurance companies and even help them form policies that can improve coverage for our patients. Um, a good example of this would be a recent recommendation by the American Society of Breast Surgeons in 2019 that actually pushed for universal testing for all women with breast cancer, not just young age or multiple people in the family, because of that potential benefit of knowing that you have a genetic condition. And initially that was pretty slow on the uptake and not many insurance companies were recognizing that. But in the past year or two, we've had people who were initially denied in 2019 come back and actually get covered this time. Can someone who's just worried about cancer, can they get testing provided that they're willing to pay on their own? Can they come for this testing or is it just not available unless there's a reason? It is certainly available. We can always try running it through insurance. Sometimes there's some reason of medical necessity that we can tell insurance that someone's mother passed away at a young age and is unavailable or they're not in contact with their family or they're adopted. All of these other family situations that can't necessarily be accounted for in your typical guideline or insurance policy. Um, and we can try to work with insurance companies to get that covered. A lot of the genetic testing companies do offer a $250 self-pay option. So patients can also weigh whether that information is worth that price. Of course, we don't want this to be a financial burden for anybody. So we always try to get it covered through insurance first, but sometimes it doesn't work out. And then the patient does have to decide whether the $250 is worth that uh, information and that knowledge for them, which is can be a very tough decision. Now, you mentioned earlier the BRCA gene and how it, it relates with breast cancer. So let's talk about specifically people with, a, with breast cancer. Um, is BRCA, is that the only genetic mutation that puts someone at increased risk for breast cancer? It's not the only one, but it is the most common and certainly the most well-known one. There are a lot of other risk uh, factor genes. We consider BRCA1 and 2 to be the highest risk breast cancer genes. Their risk for breast cancer can go up to 85%, which is very substantially increased over your average woman whose risk is about 12.5%. Uh, but there are moderate risk genes that fall more in the 20 to 50% range. So certainly still increased and certainly warrants uh, extra screening through mammograms and MRIs, but not necessarily as high as BRCA1 and 2, so they don't get the same attention. Um, but it's certainly worth testing those, and those are all included in our, our regular genetic testing that we offer to make sure that we're being thorough. You know, we don't want to just test somebody for the most common genes when there are a lot of other things out there to test for. What does it mean to have a strong family history of breast cancer? Yeah, so as I mentioned, that three or more individuals on one side of the family would certainly qualify as a strong family history. Again, with the ages, if there's somebody with a breast cancer 50 or under, and another individual with breast cancer that would qualify for genetic testing or a personal history under 45. Um, we prefer to test people who have been affected first because they're most likely to carry one of these genes and be the most informative individual for their family. So rather than testing five daughters who haven't had cancers, we'd rather test the one mom who had cancer at 45 because if she's negative, we don't really need to test the daughters. Unless, of course, there's a history on the father's side that we would need to address. But we prefer to start with somebody who's affected, if possible. Are the closer family members, the mothers, the sisters, the daughters, do, do, do they matter more than extended relatives when you're looking at an individual's risk? They certainly matter the most because they share that 50% uh, of your genetic information with them. But moving out to second-degree relatives is also important. So thinking about your... Uh, aunts and your grandparents as well can also be important. Once you move into, you know, great aunts and uncles or great great grandparents, uh, even your cousins sometimes can be a little bit more disconnected because there's a lot of people marrying into the family that aren't necessarily related to you. It can be good just to get an idea of which side's more at risk, but at that point you might want the cousin to get genetic testing first and then relay that information to you. Now, do men need to be concerned if they have? Uh a family history of breast cancer in their, in their female relatives? Yeah, it, it gets this reputation as a female cancer gene because the biggest risks are for breast and ovarian cancer, but these genes can carry risk for prostate cancers as well. 
And it is important for men to know about that so they can make sure they're getting their screenings earlier if necessary, making sure that they're on top of them. Uh, breast cancer can happen in men. It's, it's simply just more rare because we have less breast tissue, but it can still happen. Uh, if a men, man does develop male breast cancer, they automatically qualify for genetic testing as well. Um, and it doesn't rule out the fact that a man carrying the BRCA gene might not develop cancer himself because the risks are lower, but their daughters in the future might want to know if they carry it. So a lot of the times the men in the family, not always doing it for their own benefit, but more interested in if I have daughters in the future, what's their risk? Well, what do you advise someone who carries a gene that's linked with breast cancer? Right, so we'd first go over all of the National Comprehensive Cancer Network guidelines with them from the NCCN. And we want to initially start with enhanced breast cancer screening, assuming somebody hasn't had breast cancer yet. We would want to include mammograms and MRIs, often starting younger than the general population would. So maybe starting in your 30s or 40, or 10 years youngest, 10 years younger than the earliest onset breast cancer. So if somebody had breast cancer at you know, 39, we would want to start at 29. Um, and MRIs are not something that is typically done for the general population. They typically just get mammograms. So by adding that extra layer of screening in, we're able to look at the breast tissue more frequently. And with a slightly different technique, that allows us to catch something uh, more, you know, more efficiently than we might otherwise if we weren't doing that enhanced screening. Is it true that the mutations or some of the mutations that cause breast cancer may also cause ovarian cancer? Yes, yeah, so there's a great overlap between the breast and ovarian cancer genes. If you look at the panels of genes, the combination of all the genetic uh, changes that are tested for on a panel, there is great overlap between the breast and ovarian cancers, obviously headlined by the BRCA1 and 2 genes as well, but a lot of those moderate risk genes do overlap. Um, and it does provide that uh, opportunity to talk about potential surgical removal of the ovaries if necessary. So if a woman um, has one of these genetic mutations and has her ovaries removed, does that remove the threat of cancer or ovarian cancer or might another cancer appear somewhere else? Another cancer could appear somewhere else and it could still result in ovarian cancer, right? We can't guarantee that every single ovarian cell is removed. The same with when we talk about mastectomies for women, they can't guarantee that every single breast cell was removed either. Um, there are also leftover ovarian cells in the uh, peritoneal wall, the uh, lining of the abdomen, that essentially is left over from when the ovaries were migrating to their position in, as an embryo. There are some leftover cells in the abdominal wall that are ovarian in nature and can still develop into a cancer. So it's the greatest reduction in risk that we know about simply because we don't have great screening for ovarian cancer, right? We don't have a mammogram for your ovaries, right? There's no gold standard. So the best recommendations are when to take them out, which is typically 40 to 45, depending on the gene or when you're done having kids too. But we do also have to weigh that with the benefits of keeping the ovaries in place too, because they can provide a benefit to your bone and cardiac health too. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is your host, Amber Smith, talking with the Upstate Cancer Center's Jason Chandler, who's a genetic counselor. Let's talk about pancreatic cancer. Who's at highest risk for developing pancreatic cancer? Often the highest risk factors for pancreatic cancer are non-genetic factors. Smoking, drinking, those are your greatest risks. If you carry a genetic mutation, that's kind of like a double whammy, right? If you already have this uh, high risk and then you expose yourself or make bad, poor life decisions, that can put you at an even higher risk. So genes like BRCA1 and 2 or some of these moderate risk genes or Lynch syndrome, which is more commonly associated with colon cancers, can also put you at an increased risk for pancreatic cancer. And there has been a push for universal testing in pancreatic cancer as well, just like there was for breast cancer, because of the benefit of adding chemotherapy treatments. So you mentioned, I mean, we have mammograms for breast cancer and colonoscopies for colon cancers. How close are we to having a way to screen for pancreatic cancer? Unfortunately, we still don't have something right on the horizon for pancreatic screening. As you kind of alluded to, pancreatic cancer is notoriously hard to detect and treat. Uh, and because of that, we rely heavily on family history to direct our screening protocols. 
Typically, if there's a family history of pancreatic cancer, we start with an annual abdominal MRI, which alternates with an endoscopic ultrasound, starting at about age 50. That's typically when we see that risk start to increase. Uh, under 50, there's not as great a benefit. And sometimes if there's no pancreatic cancer in the family, it might not even be done because it's so hard and so time consuming and difficult to do endoscopies and all these MRIs if there's really very little benefit that we know of. But there is some, it sounds like, testing in special circumstances. If someone learns that their family has a syndrome that greatly increases, there is some precautionary stuff that they can do. Yeah, there is some precautionary stuff we can do. It's not as uh, efficient or necessarily quite the gold standard that mammograms are, um, but it is the best that we can get at this point. Again, it's a good reason why we continue to follow families, even after they've tested positive. Maybe they learn of a pancreatic cancer that develops in the family members after we started meeting with them. We can always add that screening in once they know about it. Or again, we might in the future have a really good pancreatic screen that we can add in for these patients at some point. Well, for prostate cancer, how would a man know that he's at risk for an inherited prostate cancer? Again, family history is typically our best bet. So looking at a strong family history in your father, brothers, your sons, or your grandparents, even, again, first and second degree relatives. And you might honestly see the, the greatest risk coming from a family history of breast cancer. Again, a lot of these genes overlap with breast cancer genes, and a man might not even think he's at risk for prostate cancer because, well, everyone else has breast cancer, right? But a lot of these genes can also increase your risk for prostate cancers, and we would want to make sure that that man is followed, even if it's just a breast cancer family history. It could manifest differently in the men. Is hereditary prostate cancer more aggressive than non-inherited forms? Typically, yes. And it's actually a better indication of whether something might be hereditary than age, right? So when we think about breast cancer, we're often looking at those really young ages as being concerning, 30s and 40s. But with prostate cancer, we're more concerned about the aggressiveness of the cancer. Something that's typically done for a lot of prostate cancers is a Gleason score, which ranges up to the score of 10. The lower numbers are considered lower risk, something under six. Seven and higher is where you get into intermediate or higher risk. And it's that seven and over that we would be more concerned about genetic testing. So to summarize, if someone finds out that they're carrying a gene that causes a particular cancer, it doesn't necessarily mean they're gonna get that cancer. It's just something to be aware of, right? Correct. Again, it's never a 100% guarantee. When we talk about these increased risks, think about a slider. Everyone starts with some percentage of risk simply because any cell can become cancerous. And there's often not much you can do about that risk other than trying to take care of yourself, limit exposures. But we can then alter that slider based on your genetics. We might move it up and we might move it down. Maybe you have a couple of protective factors in your body that we can actually lower that risk. But it never goes 100% or 0% either. It's always somewhere in between, which I think is important to stress to my patients. They hear that I tested positive for something and their first thought is I have cancer already. And that's not the case. So is this something to discuss with a primary care provider, or do you think that most primary care providers would refer a patient to someone like yourself, a genetic counselor? I definitely encourage people to talk to their primary care providers about genetic testing. They're often well enough trained to identify, yes, this is a strong family history of cancer. They should see a genetic counselor or a geneticist for more thorough testing. Most genetic testing is not done in a primary care office at this point. That could change in the future as genetic testing becomes more available and, and cheaper to do. Um, but most of the genetic testing at this point is done in our offices or maybe at a local GYN might do it as well. How would a person make an appointment with one of the genetic counselors at Upstate? If you ask your primary care or your gynecologist to make a referral to the Upstate Cancer Center Genetics Program, that would be the best way so we can make sure we get copies of all of your office notes and pathology and records to make sure we get all of those. Um, and currently our team consists of two genetic counselors, Bonnie Braddock and myself, and two physicians, Dr. Rinky Agarwal and Dr. Gloria Morris, and our nurse coordinator, Rachel Grossner. Wow, well, thank you for this educational conversation. Uh, my guest has been genetic counselor, Jason Chandler from the Upstate Cancer Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air.
And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Joan Barano teaches in the MFA Creative Writing Program at Dominican University in California. Her poetry has appeared in JAMA and also in the Paris Review. The poem she sent us, Catch and Release, offers a new perspective on the process leading to a breast biopsy. Catch and Release. You're allowed to breathe in intervals. Women you'll never see again take an interest in your breast. They have careful hands. They understand where to aim the dart. The dart snags red minnows of tissue. They hook your tumor, string through a hole punched in a paper cup. The surgeon, a fisher of women, yourself a river invaded by unlikely species. Asian carp below the Ohio, shoving aside the benign bass. She traces her line, splits the surface, scoops with a sharp net. You lie stilled in your flow, caught briefly before you're sewn up and let go. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, an overview of bariatric surgery options. To hear more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, Thanking you for listening.